Oh, yeah, 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 this one. The Robo Beat. Robo Beat. Beat Mason, you know what time it is. It's the podcast intro rap time. I dream of electric sheep and don't let androids boss me. My guest today is Kalman Andrashovsky. And yes, of course, you know the guest is friendly. He sketches X-Men and draws a fresh X-23. DC to Marvel, he's penciled a few comics from Boom and, uh, Devil's Do. I might have said to you the comics, yeah, I read a few. And if I make a sandwich, I only want bread that's new. Because <laughs> old bread sucks. I'm no hater. But if you give me some, I'm going to leave it on my plate, sir. Great surf. Uh, great Big C, I burgled words before my ABCs complacently. Gee, uh, I'll define it. I'm easygoing, but I'm non-compliant, defiant. Like the space shuttle complex in my rhymes, I like to place subtle context of what comes next. I hope you listen close. Like if you saw Glenn staring like you didn't know she was Glenn close. I don't know where that went, but it doesn't matter because rhymes are um, well spent on the weekend. Let's be friends. I'm where Bergie, oh my G's end, <laughs> is what I wanted the rhyme to do. I'm good, I'm fine, you? (laughs) Welcome, welcome, episode 9. It's a good one today, ladies and gents. You might have heard that in the background there. We are are rocking, rocking pretty hard. It's a little cold, but this is uh, is just the kind of beat I need to loosen up and get ready. Oh, beautiful, beautiful day. How are you? I'm glad you found us. I am SJ, the word burglar. People call me Bergie, and this is the weekend at me's. <laughs> if you're new to the podcast, I like to talk to people. Sometimes I just talk to you people. Other times I talk to people that come over and hang out, and we talk about music and comic books. Good times. And I'm really happy you found us here for episode nine. Joining me this week is none other than Kalman Andrashovsky. I can pronounce that properly now because he told me how to pronounce it. Sometimes you just gotta ask somebody. Guys, there's your there's your tip of the week. Just ask. <laughs> Calvin's amazing. He's a comic book artist. He's worked for Marvel, for DC, Devil's Do, Boom Studios. He's He's been around for a minute, and yeah, you stick around, and he will actually be here in a few minutes. <laughs> how do you like that? I'm kind of, the segues is kind of coming together, right? Yeah, it's kind of coming together here on the weekend. Nine episodes deep. I told you we'd get one more in on the on Thesis's episode. Did you guys heard Thesis's episode? Was that a good episode? I think it turned out really, really good. I was really happy with that. So check it out. I had gr- great time. But yeah, and here's the big announcement. Not only are you getting one episode this weekend, you're getting two episodes. We're going to have a little holiday special episode. I'm going to drop that in about two days after this. This is dropping on Friday. So check back by Sunday, we'll have episode 10 up. Just a nice little snippet. I was involved with the Modern Superior Holiday Spectacular over at the Social Capital Theater, a.k.a. Upstairs at the Black Swan on Danforth. It was a great show. We we did live, uh, everyone from Modern Superior did a bunch of uh, live material. See you next Wednesday, Time Bandits, the do-over, the drink-along guys. Uh, two turntables and a bottle of wine, and the full-length episode will be available at modernsuperior.com, and I'm going to release a little uh, thing for you. So that's that'll be fun, so check back for that on Sunday. Speaking of the holidays, have you been to a toy store lately? Aren't toy stores the best thing to go to at this time of year? I, I just love the excitement, the 
crying children, the stressed out adults, the, 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 the sales clerks that are fed up with people looking for the latest My Little Pony or Lego Legend of Chima Bird Wizard Space Copter. Can someone tell me they're bird space people who are ninjas, but there's also lizards they fight. I think the bird people are the good ones, kind of like Hawkman and Thanagar. For my comic people, I know we got some people who know know what I'm talking about there. I think that's a thing. I saw this kid there who was buying the entire Lego Chima uh, universe of fortresses and bird wizards that you can get. That's the thing. Don't don't worry about it if you don't know what that is. It's 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 something. <laughs> the big the big laugh that I got, I was waiting in line. I was getting a gift for my niece and I saw all these boxes of Clue, you know, the board game Clue, and they're themed and they have the Big Bang Theory edition of Clue and there must have been like 40 boxes of this game. Nobody was buying it. I think the makers of Big Bang Theory Clue grossly overestimated how many people cared to find out how the Big Bang Theory cast died. <laughs> is, that, is that too soon? Is that too mean? I don't, I don't know them. I'm sure they're nice people. I don't watch this show. I got comics to read. I got albums to make. I got podcasts to record and people to talk to. So it's, it's just not on my list. I got Homeland up there. Okay, I got Walking Dead on there. I'm still watching Walking Dead. Pretty good. Not as good as the comics, but not bad. Not bad. Very excited to see what happens next season, for sure. Do love the comics. A few people messaged me about some of my recommendations. Somebody told me they didn't like The Bunker. That's totally cool. I I love The Bunker. I'm still reading that. A few people said they really did like The Bunker. And Birthright. Has anyone read Birthright yet? Let me know. Drop us a line at weekendatburgies at gmail.com. We are going to be doing more Tackle the Issues. I did the original Sin Tackle the Issues uh, early on. I think that was actually episode one. I like doing the uh, Tackle the Issues, so I think I'm going to cover Axis because those crazy Marvel crossovers are wild. And Kalman is actually doing some covers for the Axis crossover. So stay tuned. I'll, maybe in an episode or two, I'll get to tackle those issues. But right now, let's tackle some conversation with Kalman Andrushovsky. He came all this way to hang out on the weekend. I am very excited to have him here. Among other things, right now he's working on Captain Canuck, which is super cool. They're doing a relaunch of that. He's got Marvel comic covers coming out left, right, and center in your back issue bin or on your new comic spinner rack. He's a very eloquent, very talented veritable, virtual, versatile, virtuoso. <laughs> and he's here, and we're going to we're gonna nerd out and talk, talk some fun stuff. It's a nice long one, so grab yourself a beverage, curl up, and pass the time with us on the weekend. Here it is, Kalman Andrushovsky. Let's get into it. Yeah, it was a yeah. 40s thing that went away during the war. So, like, by mm-hmm. the 50s, it was sort of gone. Interesting. Would Captain Canuck wear pleated pants? Well, he's a very practical, uh, practically-minded, uh, unshowy individual. Uh, you know, let's let's leave aside for a second that he wears red leaves all over himself. But, um, no, I'd say, like, his military background makes him very practical. 
So, you know, cargo pants. Yeah, this is modern. But like military issue, not like like old Navy, like real Navy. (laughs) Um, Cool. But we are here with Kalman, Kalman Androsovsky. I pronounced that right? Yeah, yeah, good job. Yeah, of course. You're in the top 10%. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Is that a hard thing when people announce when you're at a convention? Yes. That name terrifies everybody. I think it's because there are four (laughs) consonants back to back at the end of the name that tends to like make people's throats close. Uh, You did a good job. The thing that fools everybody and it fooled you too, but that's not your fault. I never correct people. It's Androshovsky, but there's no, there's no clue because uh, the S there's no H next to the S that's a, that's a Hungarianism uh, that I can't expect anyone to know. So Unless they're Hungarian. Yeah, Hungarians, yeah. I can always spot the Hungarians. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, so Androsovsky is fine because that is that is a literal reading of the name. So yeah, it's all good. But Androsovsky is Androsovsky. Androsovsky. Yeah, yeah it's nice. I think it rolls off the tongue. Well, thank you. It's very nice. Well done. It served me well-ish. And you are a comic book artist extraordinaire. Uh, I've You're had the pleasure kind. of knowing you for years and your work for years. And it, it's funny, I was going through... I was going through just sort of my mind and thinking, oh, when did I first notice Kalman's stuff? And I mean, we'll get into that. Getting I suspect ahead. we must have met before you actually noticed my art, but. Yeah, uh, at probably at Silver Snail. Or yeah, our secret day. origins overlap a yeah. bit. Because, uh, yeah, you worked at the Snail in, would, I guess that would have been the late 90s, maybe? Mid to late. Like, I think it was 96 to 98 or 97 to 99, something like that. And you were in there, what, like 99, uh, 2000, 2000, 2000 yeah, yeah. 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 You seem to be in the next wave after yeah. after me. Yeah. yeah, it's funny because there's whole, there are waves of, of people, too, that you run into. And, oh, I and regimes, yeah. manager <laughs> regimes. Were you this person's hire or yeah. were you that person's hire? Oh, I see. So this was around the Certain time managers have hiring styles that have <laughs> been made much of after the fact. <laughs> Do you remember what the big items were? Like, what were the big toy lines or, or graphics. Well, I worked there in the, the run-up uh, run to the Star Wars prequels. So oh. when I started, there was nothing. And as I worked there, they announced that there would be more Star Wars movies and nerddom collectively lost its mind. And then <laughs> I, think, I think I was gone before the movie actually came out. So it was that period where we all thought they would be good. Um, and, then, and, then, yeah. and then we got punched in the face really hard, repeatedly. So it was a lot of the, the comics were still in the recovering from the massive bust of the mid nineties. So, I mean, comics were happening, but the sought after items were the toys. It was toys. It was a, a refocus on toys and the collectability of toys that kind of saved the store at that time. And so the people that were lining up outside the door every Wednesday at 10 AM. And yes, there was a line were there because they desperately wanted like the rarest figure in the box of new issue, star Wars figures. And they were they were already going to town, like just re- releasing waves and waves and waves of new versions of old Star Wars figures. So they were doing new characters and old characters and every possible incidental like walk on from the original trilogy, including like the expanded universe, like spinoffs, and and so there was a hardcore contingent that would literally like fight over these toys. And and I guess McFarlane toys at the time too. Yeah, they Spawn were would have been coming. The, up Movie that Maniacs time. was in the first couple of waves. Right, movie and, Maniacs. I'm trying to think what else McFarlane was doing. I mean, I, I'm, I was never a big toy guy, so I wasn't entirely like plugged into that. But that was definitely uh, the heart of nerd retail at that time. I was there for Lord of the Rings Mania. Yeah, yeah. Boxes and boxes and boxes. That was the new Star Wars, yeah. right? Like every every decade has its Star Wars. And just a whole wall. Our decade Star Wars is Avengers. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. And 
Who who would have ever thought that? I mean, we're living in an era. I mean, you and I grew up loving comic books, and definitely, I never thinking- gave a shit for the Avengers. Like like throughout my entire comic buying time, the Avengers were a joke. Like the Avengers were last. The last time they were cool was about 1978, and then they weren't awesome again until about 2004. Like I guess, I guess in my opinion, this is all subjective. Yeah. You know, you might be like, "No, Kurt Busiek's '99 revamp <laughs> was amazing," but really, like, I mean, if you consider that the Avengers are Marvel's JLA, um, they were really sidelined to the X Men for almost two decades, which was all of my, you know, all of my comic book reading, and then that they've brought them back and made them relevant and significant, not only to comics but also to the world. Like, my mother knows who the Avengers are. And she's not talking about John Steed and Emma Peel. Like, and, and that happened in 10 years. Like, 2004, Bendis relaunched the Avengers and pissed everyone off. But, yeah, put Wolverine but in it. to my money, that's the beginning of the Avengers renaissance. And that you can draw a straight 100%. line from yeah. that to the movie. No, wait, you know what? That's not entirely fair. You got to give Mark Miller's Ultimates credit, too. Yeah. Because that really is the template for the cinematic universe. So, okay, really, we'll go back to 2001. Totally. Ultimates gave people the idea, I think, that Captain America could be cool. And he well, that all of it could be dad's cool. Favorite. Giant yeah. Man and the Wasp were cool. Oh, yeah. When the Iron Man movie came out, like leading up to it, I remember people were asking me, because I'm sure with you too, like your friends who aren't that into comics may say, oh, well, what's this guy's deal? Iron Man, you'd be hard pressed to find a really good Iron Man story that came out. There was maybe a handful. You Demon count in the Bottle hand. was the one. Exactly. And it was 1978. And that's about him being an alcoholic. He's not even being a hero in it. Yeah. You know, and then there was the Warren Ellis extremis uh, story was was pretty good. And that was the beginning of the Iron Man that's in the movies. Exactly. I mean, really, that was everything they've mined for the films really is there. Like, yeah. Well, I was always a big Avengers West Coast fan. And that was John Byrne. who Those were the Avengers yeah. that I, I actually collected that series from it the beginning. It was great. Yeah. I felt like I wanted to get it on the ground floor or something. And I wasn't even that into it. Like after about issue six, I was like, do I even like this? Why am I? I was at the right age where I was like, I think a seven or eight. And I was like, it's a number one. You know, and I didn't really understand. I was just like caught up in the furor of like, well, Avengers is at number 200 and whatever, but this is number one. And then I bailed on it. But then, yeah, John Byrne took over and I was like, John Byrne is drawing this. His run to this day is one of my favorite runs that he's worked on. I mean, I still love great and that vision revamp. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, actually, they've just brought the vision back finally at Marvel now, and he kind of looks cool for the first time since then. But that pale yellow vision redesign i still think that was so awesome that was a high point of that uh, of that avengers run that that vision redesign for me i I guess as an artist i i'm sort of like i don't read comics properly (laughs) our our mutual friend george is always giving me shit because he'll go on rants about about his friends who are artists and they'll bail on storylines mid 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 storyline mid arc because the artists change and I'm like yeah if I can do that all the time like if Olivier Coppel draws the first three issues I'm not gonna buy like the fourth one that's drawn by some like crappy like you know three artists that suck um, I use comics as fuel and so I'll, if a story if story and art are good that is the best possible scenario but like any art form that is relatively rare where you get all cylinders firing. And so more often you get you get a story that's pretty good, but you get a mixed bag of artists because art is harder and takes m- much more laborious man hours to produce. When I walk into a comic store, my first impulse is what's going to make me want to run back and draw? 
What's going to make, what's going to give me fuel and energy to get over the hump of all the possible distractions of all the things I could be doing of, of, of like things like sleep and, uh, <laughs> and you know what, you know, like, like watching television or like being with my girl of all the, all those human distractions that get in the way, what's going to make me like desperate to draw more and raise the bar. And so even if it's like one panel in a crappy book, I don't care about, that's where my money will go. And then beyond that, occasionally the stars align and the story is good too. And then very rarely there's something where I'm sufficiently invested in it as the actual story delivery device that it is, where I will get pulled into the story and I will buy it no matter no matter what. But that's that's relatively rare. Like I have to kind of use it as fodder, as as like burn that coal to make the make the donuts to totally mix a metaphor. But um Occasionally, you know, there are books that will capture me. Like, uh, I love Why the Last Man. Yeah. Um, I love Fables. I will read those no matter what. Finder. Um, and that those those books are well drawn. Um, and none of them are like your style. No, of no. Of art. That's but those, those are books, amazing. Those are books yeah. where I'm invested as a reader. But those are books that are also yeah. fairly consistent in their look. 100%. But those yeah. aren't books, no diss to the people making them. Those are never books that I open to get inspired to draw. Those are books that I, I will read to... to to be instructed on how to write. Um, Who would be an artist that would maybe inspire you right now? Like if you see someone's art and you say, oh, wow, that panel blew my mind. I need to go home and draw. Um, I, I, I am very open and I make no secret of my intense love of all things Stuart Eminem. Yes. I think he is the genius rock star of the 21st century. He's amazing. He would yeah. be very embarrassed and try to shut me down if he were in earshot of this because he's an extremely humble human. But that guy uh, can do everything and do it ten times better than the next best guy. He can he can draw superheroes. He can draw normal people wearing real clothes. He can draw cars. He can draw buildings, and all of it has personality and all of it has reality. He can draw action. He can draw emotional scenes that are just talking heads, but make it visually interesting. He is amazing. And the thing that's most exceptional about him is there might be a guy or two who can draw a prettier picture, but those guys are drawing four to six issues a year and Eminem is pumping out 18. It's He's amazing, yeah. And he continues to to do that. I just picked up his new Captain America with oh, yeah. the Falcon. Yeah. And again, looking at the panels, I'll be honest, as a kid, as an Avengers fan, Falcon was never a character I cared about. But you look at that new, the new design and just the way he's got him flying around, like, just absolutely beautiful and like like imminent i find with your art there's a real fluidity there's always movement going on and that i think is a true testament to your talent of whether you've got someone just there's one thing to to see a character just posed on a the top of a church or something like that i'm Mm -hmm. thinking about looking at your that you did a cover it was a Dracula and he's holding the woman. Was that for X Men? No, that was I. I, I yeah, that was um, that was for a Tomb of Dracula omnibus. Marvel was collecting these massive omnibus collections of of all sorts of things, and what they were doing was they were actually commissioning alternate covers for the omnibus. So they would collect all the Wolverine comics, and then they would commission like. And what and then what they did do was they commissioned like Steve McNiven to do his version of that iconic Frank Miller. Uh, cover from the Wolverine miniseries. So like the, the regular cover would be the Frank Miller cover of Wolverine with his claws out, like saying, come on. And then they would have an alternate cover of the omnibus that you could also get, which was like McNiven's interpretation. So that cover was my interpretation of a Gene, Gene Colan cover yeah. of the final issue. It was the second omnibus because they did two for Tomb of Dracula. 
And uh, so, to be fair, I gotta say, like any the layout and the fluidity of that, I think a lot of that is 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 me channeling the Gene Colon design. Like there are decisions in that cover that I would not have made, not because I thought they weren't the right decisions, but they just wouldn't have occurred to me because they were Gene's. Gene Colonisms, um, and then I I ran with the ball and and made it mine in all kinds of other ways, and that's still one of the favorite things I got to do. But uh, but you know credit where it's due. Like like there's a lot of Gene Colon in that cover. It is a it is a recreation. Yeah, but I see that in all your books. Like this one right here. I want oh, to snap. talk about. I didn't I draw that cover. I know though. you didn't do the cover. I know you didn't do the cover, but <laughs> yeah. the interiors. Yeah, that is a blast from the past. That what are we looking at here? Funny. This is eye candy. This is <clears throat> eye candy number one. That's eye candy like iMac or iPhone, not EYE. Um, this was a this was my first real thing that I did. This is a serious blast from the past. Two thousand three. Taking it back. That's what yeah. we do here, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is old school. This is some OG shiz. Um. So I had just, I had just uh, hooked up with Carl Kerschel and Brendan Fletcher on whorehouse.com. And I did a fill-in on Olivier Coipel's Legion run. And that was sort of my first, I guess my first sort of mainstream thing. Like before that, I'd done a bit of caliber work. And I was doing a lot of Dungeons & Dragons and Star Wars art for the role-playing games, but not actually comics. And, and I got hooked up with this 10-page fill-in on an issue of Legion, or six-page fill-in. It was, it was number 10, which is why I get confused. Numbers. Pff. Legion, who can keep track anyway? But There's I, I, so many of them. So Dan Abnett and Andy <laughs> Lanning were drawing Legion, or mm-hmm. writing Legion, and yep. it was Olivier Coipel's first work. Oh, cool. Which is how I sort of, I mean, I'd been aware of it, and but they sent me copies of all the issues as reference, and really digging into it for reference made me realize, holy crap, this guy's good. Yeah. I think this Coipel guy, I think he's going to be a thing. He's amazing. And, yeah. and, and I'd be like talking him up, and they'd be like, who? Who's this? I'm like, no, no, the Legion. Oh, that guy? I'm like, no, no, he's going to be huge. And they're like, what? I totally called Koipel. I totally <laughs> called Chris Anka, too. Uh, <clears throat> but I digress. So um, Abnett and Lanning were pitching this project called Eye Candy, which was a video game character, like a Chun-Li, sci-fi Chun-Li character, kind of comes out of the video game. And uh, and they asked me if I wanted to do it. And yeah, I said yes, because holy shit, like these guys are, are writing Legion and it's amazing. And, and DC somehow agreed to it. And uh, yeah, this was my first uh, miniseries, my first like anything more than a fill-in. It was a six-issue miniseries. Weirdly, it was, it was branded with the DC bullet, but it was set outside the DC universe. Um, at the last minute, they sort of threw it in with a couple of other books as a sort of a, it was sort of a pre-Minx line. I can't remember what they called it, but they, they sort of, at the last minute they went, oh, we have these weird books that don't really fit into anything. They both, they all have women in them. It was like, it was like sort of like comics for girls. Like, I can't remember what the branding was. It was like, there was a Darwin Cook book or like a book he was doing the covers for and something else. I think it was Fallen Angel. Yeah, that eventually moved to IDW as a Peter David book. Now there was something too, because Transmet did, was Transmet always Vertigo, or didn't it start? No, it as started at Helix, Helix, which was the sci-fi imprint, and then when yeah. Helix, all of the Helix books were kind of flops except for Transmet. So then yeah. they they grandfathered it into Vertigo. So DC sort of branded it with these two other female sort of centric books at the last minute, um, and they sort of felt like, I guess. You know, I I can't speak to what the what the thinking was, but uh, I was it was extremely flattered that Abnett Landing thought that I should draw this. Well, those guys for people listening who 
may not be familiar with their work, they were responsible for revamping Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. The Guardians of the Galaxy that is on the screen is about 75% Abnett and Lanning sort of... uh, I mean, some of those characters existed before that, but they really put those chess pieces together in in the form that you're seeing. Yeah, Um, they brought Rocket Raccoon back and made people care about, I don't know, (laughs) Star-Lord. They're amazing writers. Um, And so uh, the cool thing about this book was I got to design Eye Candy and every other character too, but because it wasn't set in, in in a... like a superhero universe, it was set in our world. She was like the only weird thing. There really weren't a lot of superheroes or anything. Um, She was the missing sister to the young teenage boy. You didn't just bring it. You also read it. (laughs) Damn. That's off to you. I like the, you, the Chun-Li comparison. I can totally see in some of your panels too. There, I remember there are panels of, of her jumping and flipping around and, Maybe it's the bagginess of the pants or there's the kicking techniques. Like I tried to really run with the ball. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, in in the opening scene, there's sort of a fake street fighter game he's playing. And like, I thought about every character in that, in that opening screen. And some of them were even like characters from random, like things I'd made up that I just kind of threw in there for fun. Um, But yeah, designing eye candy was a lot of fun. Um, character design is, is kind of my favorite part of all of this. And, uh, yeah, I tried to kind of synthesize a lot of the, I've always been into manga and video games and everything. Like it's not just superheroes for me. It's all, all the jazz. And, um, so I tried to kind of give her sort of elements of, of the things that I was looking at. So there was a lot of like fantasy star online, in the color palette and the sci-fi elements of her costume and yeah yeah, and blue hair but i gave her these sort of floating sort of tech kind of headgear that sort of was meant to sort of suggest chun li's buns and uh, i was looking at a lot of hair uh, buns we're talking about hair buns hair buns (laughs) yes not 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 her popo um and i was looking at uh ghost in the shell 2 was just coming out in japan and so I was looking at a lot of Masamuni Shiro and his sort of his posing and his fight scenes. And that guy is a, is a monstrous genius when it comes to kinetic action scenes, particularly featuring women. He can get a bit pervy too, but obviously that's not the elements you're going to channel into a DC book. I, I really tried to kind of be influenced by things other than comics to make a video game comic feel like as much a video game as possible because you know it's sort of like as a musician you probably experience this like scott pilgrim was the first movie where a band got up on stage and they looked cool and they actually sounded like the band they looked like yeah instead of some shitty generic copyright cleared like stock stock track you know like i remember there's some law and order episode where there were some hipsters in brooklyn and they were in a warehouse and they had a band and everything looked right and then you heard the music and you're like what what it was like commercial jingles like it was painful and that was edgar wright and scott pilgrim made a point of like commissioning back and broken social scene to make the music sound right and that's a great soundtrack and too. so i didn't want yeah. like some generic video game that looked like i don't know like 15 years out of date like like space invaders or something like if this was a book about a kid who bought a video game and played it on his lex box because yes in the dc universe <laughs> the lex, lex luthor <laughs> has a monopoly on the console market no joke it's literally yeah, called the lex yeah. box the lex box there's even i even designed like an l logo for it and stuff um I wanted the video game to feel like something cool that actually looked like all the video game art that I loved. And so there's, there's a scene that um, there's a fight scene in issue two where she's fighting some guys. And I actually put in like um, 
like Street Fighter combo moves. Like it was like A B and then joystick rotations, and nice. then her power meter was filling up until yeah. she did her like finishing move. That was all me just kind of adding extra love to really make it feel like the stuff that we all loved. And then uh, in my immense hubris, I was a total noob, but I demanded that not only do I pencil and ink this comic series, I also color it. I totally wanted the Josh Middleton plan. I thought I thought I was the shit like everybody does when they're 25. And uh, and so I colored the first three issues as well. Um, but by issue four, I had to hand off the coloring to Udon. And since all of those effects were kind of added in color, like they kind of ran with the ball in their own way and and that wasn't in there anymore. But that the first three issues I'm... I'm actually still proud of other things. Of course I would do differently now, but all of that, the design, the character design, particularly the video game sort of elements, I still look back on that and, and feel pretty good about it and the joystick moves and all that. And it's, it's amazing how you go through arcs with your work where, you know, the day before you're starting, you think it's going to be the best thing ever. As you're drawing it, you think you're a fraud and it's awful and, and you should be lynched. And then after it's, it's out of your hands, you feel you're regretting all the things you didn't do. And then six months later, it's just a comic. You're flipping through it and you're like, it works. It's like Bill Murray in uh, Lost in Translation. Like you drink the whiskey and you're like, it works. It works. It's comics. I'm reading it. I'm feeling it. It's comics. It's just a comic. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. um, that's really cool. So with eye candy. From that, that launched you into doing a lot of covers. Did you do some stuff for the Outsiders and some of the one year later? Was it one I year did, later? I did one Outsiders cover. Um, yeah. Uh, no, iCandy didn't launch anything. After iCandy, it was pretty quiet for a while there um, because it was sort of a limp across the finish line in terms of, uh, in terms of deadlines. Um, but yeah, I mean, big surprise. A book starring a female character no one heard of that was outside the DC universe did not sell record-breaking numbers. <laughs> And, uh, and so from there, I think I, 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 for the next year, I did a lot more role-playing game art. And then the covers were sort of a discrete event. Um, I was friends with B. Clay Moore, who created uh, the image series Hawaiian Dick. Yeah, great series. And the leading man for Oni and a bunch of other stuff. And he was writing a Vampirella miniseries. He did some G.I. Joe stuff, too. Uh, he so may, he did may, you. He may have done. Which and is, so yeah. did I, but not together. Well, I wanted to ask you that because you've drawn some of my favorite characters of all time. Being, really? Well, you drew Cobra Commander. You did a cover with yep. Cobra Commander. Yeah. Well, yeah, technically, it was a it was a cover of a poster of the Cobra poster, Commander. The poster, yeah. But yeah, Cobra Commander was on it. That was during the Devil's Due days. Yeah. Yeah. I did some G.I. Joe Devil's Due And you covers. did the Skullbuster cover, right? With the guy with the dreadlocks? Yes. Yes. Yes, I did. And I, remember- I mean, to me, that was a cover girl and shipwreck cover with some other dude I'd never heard of. <laughs> but I guess he's important to you. He's super obscure. And anytime he, he's only appeared like three times, but every time he shows up, he's this crazy, cool, former range viper with dreadlocks. I'm that guy that's like, I love Skullbuster. So was that actually a figure or did he become, was he just for the comics? They did make a figure, but the figure didn't have the dreadlocks. So the dreadlocks were added in, in the comic series. And then years later- and was they- the figure Skullbuster or range viper? There was it, the the figure was called Skullbuster, okay. but he was a Range Viper figure just painted purple instead of blue. Oh, okay, <laughs> and, and then, then, and then now, whoever was drawing do. the book wanted to give him something a little little extra to make him d- distinct, and they added dress. Yeah, it was cool. How the huh. G, with the GI Joe thing, and yeah, of course, CoverGirl and Shipwreck were in the front of that. Yeah, were you a Joe fan at all? Yeah, I loved the cartoon when I was a kid. I never really read the comics. Um, same with Transformers. I mean, I'm, I was the exact perfect age for that stuff. But if I had to pick one, I was more of a Transformers fan. And I was in the minority where after in season three, where they suddenly jumped ahead to the future post-movie, I actually liked that stuff more. 
I know that alienated a lot of people, but I was excited by how weird and different and uncomfortable it was. I loved it. They got off Earth. There yeah. were kind of weird aliens. There was like Star Wars space. sci-fi characters. Okay, so you so, and I are on the same page. Absolutely. But this it was, was a minority cool. view in my school. Yeah. Well, people would, were like, what? Where's Optimus Prime? This is bullshit. Who are these <laughs> imposters? But on the on the screen, it didn't matter. Like they were just a bunch of new characters. I my favorite Transformer was Ultra Magnus. Who was Optimus Prime with like plastic around the toy. Him. I'm the not character the toy. I'm great. talking about yeah, the toy the character was great. Could not care less about the toy. The toy was <laughs> obvious crap. But the actual character on screen, I just I really enjoyed that design. I thought he was one of the coolest looking robots. Yeah, I think um, Robert Stack did his voice really? in the movie. Yeah, I guess they had a bunch of celebrity yeah, casting. Yeah, Orson right? Welles Leonard was Leonard Nimoy. Orson Welles' final role. Yeah. That's up there on that list with like Raul Julia like dying Street after playing play. Bison. Like, <laughs> There's a long list of these venerable, like respected actors who just take some shitty gig and then croak immediately after yeah. and that's on their fucking epitaphs. <laughs> like, he was Citizen Kane. You know, he was, uh, uh, what's the guy from Touching Evil? Quinlan. And he was Unicron. Devourer of worlds. Devourer of worlds. Cool. Um, cool. But you were asking me about GI Joe. I was totally rambling. No, it's good. Um, I love GI Joe too. Um, I was a big fan of Flint. Flint was my favorite character, and he got a lot of love in season two or three. I can't remember. There was a very Flint centric. Uh, Flint Lady J. Yeah, yeah. And she was like Rogue, basically. Yeah. Like if if before there was an X Men cartoon when I imagined Rogue, that sort of that sort of husky voice she had. I totally imagine like Lady J being the ideal rogue. There was there were these weird overlaps in pop culture. I could see that. It wasn't surprising. So and would I, Gambit be Flint? I don't know. I'm not sure if I could agree with that. No, because Gambit's kind of more. Yeah, Gambit would be more of like a shipwreck. I yeah. think you did a great Gambit cover uh, for X23, right? I did. That was my first X23 cover. That's where he's on the motorcycle. Yeah. Yeah. That that's a great guy. I was really excited to get that gig, and it was my second time working with Marjorie, who had written uh, NYX uh, Volume Two that I drew. It was another weird Middleton overlap, where after 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 the you know being all excited about the Middleton plan, uh, suddenly I got to do the sequel to the book that made him famous in Marvel. Um, and Marjorie Liu wrote that, and Marjorie Liu had taken over X twenty three. And uh, and she had done this really interesting thing where, you know, there's a whole history of Wolverine mentoring kind of younger female characters. But because X-23 is his clone, there's this wall between them that just made that impossible. So she kind of put a twist on it and said, had Gambit take her under his wing. And so it was this same archetypal relationship of this older, roguish, grizzled sort of veteran of mutant doings and this younger, inexperienced character but instead of a Wolverine character doing the mentoring, it was a Wolverine character who was the pupil. And it really made that series cool. I really enjoyed that and enjoyed doing those covers. Yeah, she's a very popular character, too. For, for people at home who don't know, like Calvin just said, yeah, she's, she's officially the clone of Wolverine. They've She is Wolverine's teenage female clone. Exactly. <clears throat> she has two claws out of her hands and one claw out of each foot. They created her in the, uh, in the cartoon. And they brought her into the Marvel U in the sort of the Harley Quinn sort of method. Right. Is that X-Men Evolution? The I think yeah. so. Yeah. I never watched it, but I knew uh, that's yeah. what she was from. And uh, actually, she first appeared in NYX, but she wasn't in the series that I drew. She'd left the team. And yeah, Bendis is using her now in the all-new X-Men. She's a, a big part of that book. And uh, I, yeah, I, I mean, I fell in love with that character. Marjorie's take on it was to pull her out of out of the mutant verse and kind of take her into the bigger Marvel universe. And that was sort of the thesis of that sort of her and Gambit on the road 
visiting different spots in the Marvel universe and interacting with um, characters you wouldn't expect. She, she delved, a, there was a whole thing of her and the fantastic four. She kind of became a Frank Franklin and Valeria's babysitter. There's a whole adventures in babysitting arc and the future foundation actually, you know, was in about eight of the issues. Like the whole Franklin Valeria X 23 relationship kind of became a big part of the book, which is not necessarily the first place you would think to go with Wolverine's clone, but uh, it was interesting stuff. It was really good. Fun to draw. Cool. And there's a connection there because Hickman is writing Avengers world, right? Mm -hmm. And you're doing some covers for that. I did. Yeah. I did do a couple. The Dr. Doom. And did you do one with triathlon? I did. I did. Now there's you talking back to Avengers again. Technically, I did two with Triathlon, although now he's 3D Man again. He's 3D. Amazing. See, I was my friend Mike Drake. I don't know if you know Mike. I, oh, yes. Yeah, you know Mike, the 3D. I he's, met Mike because he came up to me at a convention with his 3D Man sketch. Yeah. <laughs> okay, if I ask you to draw somebody a little weird, how do you feel about that? And I said, more excited than if, <laughs> if you wanted another Wolverine. <laughs> I want to get into that in a sec. But yeah, with 3D Man triathlon his i don't know he was an athlete and now the new the new triathlon is or the new 3d man is formerly triathlon right which and was their attempt to kind of do a revamp of 3d man that wasn't kitschy and then they went ah we'll just lean into it and do they give you set designs that yeah you need in, to in that case um they hired me to do the two two covers of that arc it was a it was an axis tie-in so I guess they sort of unexpectedly sort of added that that chapter in to kind of give Avengers World a connection to Axis. So it was just a two-part arc. It was basically Doctor Doom and Valeria Richards kind of choosing their own Avengers team. So the first cover is them kind of looking at candidates, and then the next cover is like your classic superhero chart with this team of oddballs like Stingray and 3D Man. And uh, weirdly, I realized while drawing that cover that if, for all the years I've been doing covers for Marvel, the character that I've drawn the most... The character that has appeared on more covers, other than other than like X twenty three, where like I was drawing her book, so of course she's going to be on every cover. But but out of out of books where I was not a regular cover artist, I've drawn Valeria Richards on seven covers. That's that's got to be a and record. Two, two of them were Future Foundation covers, but I was not the regular artist. Those were just uh, fill-ins. But then on, with this Avengers World cover, it's the fifth. Uh, the seventh in total time she's popped up on one of my covers. That's some wild trivia. Yeah, it's weird. Now, from now on, whenever you do a Marvel cover, you have to work her in. Maybe, maybe that. anytime I have a crowd scene. <laughs> in a TV screen in yeah, the background. I, I did do a Mighty Avengers cover where there's a huge <laughs> crowd. I really should have taken advantage of that. Then it could have been eight. Now, when you're drawing a cover, I, I always wonder this. Does someone like editorial t- uh, tell you what to draw or request what to draw? I shouldn't even say tell you what to draw, but that should... Is it the writer who says, "All right, on this cover, like say for your Gambit and I, I, yeah, usually, usually, I mean, usually it's the editor. Mm-hmm. In the case of like the Avengers World, where it's just a, a fill in here and there, I have no real interaction with the writer. In the case of um, like Extreme X Men or X twenty three, where I, it was a long run, uh, it kind of depends on the writer. But yeah, I mean, the editor—it's the editor's job to to contact and deal with everybody. And covers, covers are a weird little microcosm because they need to commission covers three months before the actual comic for catalog. So everybody, the whole creative team, is focusing on getting number sixteen out the door into the printer, and then they also have to think ahead to number nineteen for like a second. And it's really hard if you're a creative person, particularly making those lateral shifts. So everything's always kind of last minute. I guess it depends on the editorial office. But yeah, usually they'll have a, a sentence or a concept or they'll be able to give me a rundown of what's happening in the issue. 
Um, occasionally they don't know. Occasionally they're like, well, you know, this arc's finishing. We haven't really figured out what we're doing next. I don't know, like pitch us stuff or okay. make them fighting this guy. And then once in a, once in a while, like I'll do that. And then by the time they write the thing, it's like, oh, actually he's fighting a totally different villain, but we're going to run the cover anyway. And then people on the message board are like, who is this idiot cover artist? Why is he putting this guy on the cover? He's not even in the issue. And I just have to like grit my teeth and, and uh, hold my tongue. Um, in the case of X-23 though, that was a particularly good working relationship um, because I was working with Marjorie again, who I already had a connection with through NYX and the editor, Janine Schaefer, who's also awesome. Um, Marjorie and I chatted all the time and she would always sort of kind of bounce ideas for arcs off of me. We would chat about ideas and she would kind of tell me what she was thinking. And so then that enabled me to kind of um, get ahead of everything. And actually I, I'd start pitching Janine uh, ideas for the whole arc like so marjorie says the arc is blah so how about this for the first book this for the second book this for the third book and jane would be like uh well the third one i don't like that but the second one's good do that for the first issue and i mean she would definitely participate but that was a rare situation where i had a behind the scenes peak other writers you know if we're not friends they're not necessarily going to be they're going to be doing their their work on their own and that's fine that's kind of how it's supposed to work but with Marjorie, I could, I could, I could pitch her ideas, and I could get her on my side, and 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 be, because because we were friends, she would be like, "Hey, Janine's asking me for cover ideas. What do you want to do?" Like like that. Like where ordinarily the writers would get the, we need to solicit covers, and then they would send the editor the idea, and the editor would would tweak it or whatever, and pass it on to me. Marjorie would just be like, "Oh, Janine's asking me for cover ideas again. What do you want to do?" And uh, and I was able to kind of get ahead of the schedule. Often covers are due at the end of the month because that's when the catalog deadline is. So, you know, if you're a cover artist, you can have two or three regular gigs. Four or five regular gigs is perfectly doable in theory, except what happens is everybody wants them that one week. Right. Nobody wants to talk about covers in week two or week one of a month. Everybody wants them at the end of the month. And by catalog, this is Previews Magazine catalog and Marvel catalogs just for people listening. So it's so retailers know what to order. Yeah. So if one guy sees, oh, X-23 is fighting Paste Pot Pete this issue, that's crazy. And then three months later it comes out and, oh, Paste Pot Pete's not in this comic at all. To be fair, <laughs> also what they're looking at is just who's involved. Like, Sure. It, but but yeah, I mean, a cover can go a long way to selling a book. Oh, covers and, sell books, yeah. I think, more often than anything else probably. So that was a rare instance where I was actually able to get several months ahead of the schedule and actually kind of like think about ahead of time, like, okay, this is a four issue arc. Mm -hmm. Let's make all of these covers, like the Future Foundation arc, each cover featured X-23 and a member of the team, you know, and, and kind of thinking about that or like, yeah. I can think ahead and all of these covers are going to be kind of bluish or all of these covers, like something, just something to give it like, oh, these are all set in Paris. Okay. Each cover will be like against a Parisian landmark. Cool. And that was actually way more rewarding. Uh, to have that sort of bigger picture perspective. And it really kind of made me feel more a part of things than ordinarily as a cover artist you do. I mean, a lot of readers literally look at the logo, look at the number and open to page one and don't even really look at the cover. Oh, I take it all in. I enjoy the full masterpiece. Well, you are you yeah. are more the ideal reader. <laughs> I'm not casting any aspersions on you. I'm their target You brought me eye candy, everything. obviously. You, you, you take care to pay attention to the details. Here's another question I was wondering. When you're working at a company like Marvel or DC and you have to draw something very specific, whether it's, I don't know, let's say the Batcave or the Helicarrier or Avengers Mansion or I guess now Avengers Tower, is there a guidebook with diagrams that you have to follow? 
I, mean, I remember in annuals, reading old Marvel annuals, sometimes every now and then you see, oh, this is Avengers Mansion. This is where the beast exercises, or this is where, you know, uh, Jarvis sleeps at night, or this is the kitchen, and this is like all these weird things. Like, do is there certain things, like, say, for Gambit, like Gambit has a staff? Is there a certain way you have to draw Gambit's staff, or do they not worry about the particulars? No one has ever worried about people's sticks. <laughs> Um, generally though, I mean, when you're a cover artist, you're usually, I mean, unless it's a regular gig, you're coming, you're coming in new. Um, I've never worked on a project that's needed it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that Marvel on their server has SketchUp models of certain landmarks of the Marvel universe. I know there's like an Iron Man SketchUp model or a 3D model of some other, some other program, like the, the, the up-to-date armor. To show how it comes apart, like if his uh, arm... No, not be- come apart. It's just a 3D model of the okay. Iron Man armor so you can get all the details. And, uh, and like there were SketchUp models of like locations like Avengers Tower mm-hmm. or the Helicarrier and stuff. Um, I don't think about- I've never worked on anything that's needed that stuff. I don't know if that still exists. That's a few years old. That, yeah. may, be, that, may, be, uh, that may be gone. I don't know. I even wonder about hairstyles. Like, would you be allowed to change Storm's hairstyle? I mean, she's had the mohawk, she's had the long hair, something like that. Would you be able to say, oh, I'm just going to give her, put it in a honey, what do they call those, a honey, the beehive? (laughs) Storm has had beehive. beehive. (laughs) Storm has had afros before. Like, sometimes in the John Byrne run, when they were, like, in their civilian identities, she'd kind of comb that shit out and have a big afro. Um, as as a cover artist, it's not really your place to kind of reinvent the wheel. Right. Occasionally on on Extreme X Men, I'm trying to think if this has happened anywhere else, but in, uh, at least in that book, because it was sort of a dimension hopping book, where every couple of issues it was like a new world with new characters. And in, in those on those covers, I designed a few characters because they're like, okay, in this issue they're going to be in like a post apocalyptic cyberpunk world, and they fight a version of Dazzler that's like Cable. I'm like, is there a design? They're like, nope, just make it up. I'm like. Okay, happily, yeah, that must be a lot of fun to be. Yeah, to and there was design. a there was a sort of a cowboy saber tooth. There was a cowboy cyclops. Um, There's like yeah, like a Deadwood world, and I got to design a couple of those characters. There was like a, um, and that was just due to the timing of like because I was the first person who had to draw that stuff. I did it, and then the artist kind of had to go with what I did. Although although he took the mustache off Cyclops, I gave Cyclops a fucking sweet Sheriff Bullock Deadwood mustache cowboy cyclops yeah yeah he was it totally based him on seth bullock from deadwood that's the uh yeah what's the actor's name oliphant's character timothy oliphant is the actor yeah from justified and i uh, took the took the mustache off and then like and then like two issues later there was another cyclops and that guy had a mustache when he wasn't supposed to and i'm like you you didn't you moved the mustache why <sighs> I don't understand. Well, maybe you can pitch Cyclops first. I based, like I based, verse, I based the cowboy, <laughs> I based the cowboy saber tooth on Jason Aaron. I gave him a massive beard. Um, I was, I could see that. <laughs> I, I love opportunities to design stuff. That was, that was a, a cover gig where I actually had it. But generally, when you're a cover artist, I mean, no, you got to follow the look of the book. Yeah. So I'll look up like what the current version is, and and occasionally Marvel will make decisions to like radically change a character, and then they'll I. This is more a thing now, but they'll commission an artist specifically to do the design. And I kind of like that. It's a different sensibility. The people who can draw really kinetic action or like really lay out a cityscape or really draw an interesting crowd scene aren't always the people who are best at designing costumes or designing clothes. That's a gig I would love to do. I would love to do more design work. Well, your design, this comes full circle to Captain Canuck. Because you had the honor of redesigning Captain Canuck for 
the present day. I did. If you're in Canada, you might know who that is. And if you're not in Canada, you probably have no idea who that is. But Captain Canuck is a, is a Canadian comic book hero from the 70s and 80s who, uh, who we were bringing back. And, and yeah, I redesigned Cat Canuck and his whole universe. The original Captain Canuck, I remember, lived in the future Canada of like 1992. Two or something. Correct. Yes. <laughs> He's in the distant future, the year 1993. And uh, yeah. And then, and then that series ended with him get getting trapped in the past, which was the present. Like the series ended with him trapped in 1981, which was contemporaneous to when the comic was published. And, and then one, the other Canuck was like inspired by comics he'd read featuring the original Canuck. There was a whole, each one sort of related to the other. And there was a weird sort of like the previous ones were fiction in the universe of the new ones. And there was this whole lineage and ours is not like that. Ours is, is Tom Evans and it's a total reboot. It's Battlestar Galactica style. So awesome. That's a great comparison. And you and George Zotti are working on it and we are George who owns the silver snail is, is definitely a huge part of there's a whole brain trust of producers and creators. And, and George is one of them. He's, he's, he's definitely spearheading the new comic book and uh, yeah, much like Battlestar Galactica, we've made everyone a woman. <laughs> we've rule 63, the shit out of captain Canuck in his universe. And that series is going to be debuting 2015. Yep, you, next I mean, year, the next web summer. series is online now and then the comics next summer. Yeah. It's a multi-pronged approach. It yeah. all started with an animation project that became a five part animated web series that is uh, done and uh, viewable for free at captaincanuck.com. And uh, my role in that was to redesign captain Canuck and all the characters. And that was, uh, a lot of fun and incredibly rewarding. Um, the producers came to the table with their own ideas and it was very collaborative and everybody brought amazing stuff to the table and everybody everybody took it very seriously and we all we all continue to believe that there's there's great stuff here and this this project can be really cool. And then the next wave is a comic book series uh, which will be launching next summer mm-hmm. that I am I have the privilege of writing and drawing which is terrifying and rewarding at the same time. Well, everything I've seen so far, all your designs are awesome. The The, the web series looks great. And yeah, it's got a Thank full you. force. And because I think I first saw you guys de- debuted at Fan Expo. Uh, yeah, we had a promo poster yeah. at Fan Expo a year or two ago. And I see you at Fan Expo all the time. You, uh, you're a Fan Expo veteran. I am. I, <laughs> I am a, a yeah. I, I, I may have some Fan Expo PTSD from all the all the tours I've done at Fan Expo. Fan Expo is our local Toronto comic convention, which is at the end of every summer, and it's it's apparently the third largest in North America after San Diego, year. New yeah, York. Getting which I would be suspicious of if it were Canadians claiming this, but it's actually Marvel people. No, who told they. Me that. I think they had over a hundred thousand. This year, easily. Yeah, it's crazy bananas. And at, so if you're, when you're set up at Fan Expo, and I know I've, I've been there, seen you, you're drawing sketches for people, you're talking to fans. You were saying earlier, we were talking about my buddy Mike, you were drawing the 3D man. Yep. Do you get a lot of weird requests to draw There's like one people? or two every show. <laughs> Those are the ones that I live for. Those are the yeah. ones that... Uh, in Edmonton, someone asked me to draw the Bride of Frankenstein, and that might be like the favorite commission I've ever done. Oh, cool! So people are always really embarrassed to ask that. I, I don't know, I don't know where that comes from. Um, I guess maybe there's a certain kind of artist who just wants a an easy an easy ask. But uh, those are the commissions where that I pull out all the stops for. You know, drawing 
Good to know. I mean, drawing X-23 or or Captain Canuck or Dazzler or other characters I've drawn is, sure, I mean, I can do that. And it makes sense why you would want that from the person who did that. But when somebody comes at me with a curveball and says, draw me a Royal Tenenbaums character, which has happened, um, that gets me really excited. That's awesome. And you just did the Royal Tenenbaums art show, right? Yeah, actually, that's true. I was in a, a group art or show. the Wes Anderson, yeah, I should say. Yeah, inspired by the movies of Wes Anderson, yeah. All of them, Tenenbaums included. Um, I think I was the only bottle rocket piece in the room. Nice. What'd you draw? What else? Kumar. <laughs> it's all about Kumar. <clears throat> this is a really good interview. I really like your flow. You've awesome, You've done your man. research. This might be the most comprehensive and well-segued interview I've ever done. Just go with the flow, man. That's yeah. how we do, you know? Hang out on the I'm weekend sincerely and talk. I'm, I'm sincerely happy you're here. I did mention characters that I, that I love that you have drawn. And one of my all-time favorites is Spider-Man. Spidey's... Who can Sp- argue with Spider-Man? Well, that's I mean. the thing, right? Spidey's kind of the one where it's so easy to say, but at the end of the day, you know what? He's kind of got everything going for him. I always loved I always loved Spider-Man. Now, I also love Savage Dragon, too. <laughs> and I'm probably in the minority for that. But you did a Spider-Man cover and the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon, because I, you posted, I saw that on your blog. There was an interesting... I'm not sure I should have posted that. <laughs> well, there was an interesting thing. We don't have to talk about that. We can... No, no, let's, let's share. Let's get into it. Sure. Well, you had drawn a great cover of Spidey swinging towards the viewer towards the reader with uh, Gwen Stacy is just a really nice piece. And Thank then you. that Spidey pose, because there are, I, Spider-Man's a character where there are very like Batman or Superman, Spider-Man. They're very iconic Spidey poses. You got the Ramita poses, sure. obviously the McFarlane one oh, that yeah. everybody knows. Yeah. The pose that you had done was a totally unique pose. And I think you had said that it was, you had tried to really embody I, the character. And I was never a Spider-Man fan. Growing up, um, I was always a kid. I know, but but I became one, uh, which is where I'm going with this. Like, I I was always the kid who was attracted to oddball characters. Like, I think the reason why I get excited when people come up to me and say, draw me 3D Man, is I like those characters. And Spider-Man and Superman and Batman, you know, by the time I was six, I was already sick of them. They were everywhere. I liked weirdos. That's why I picked up that copy of X-Men when I was five. Because I was like, I want the book where I don't recognize anybody. Totally. Um. But it was it was um, when Stuart Immonen, getting back to him, when he took over Ultimate Spider-Man, that was the first issue of Ultimate Spider-Man that I ever bought for him. And reading a few arcs of him and Bendis on that book, I understood why Spider-Man is awesome. It was all stuff I knew intellectually. Like again, the re- part of the brilliance of that series is Bendis isn't reinventing the wheel. He's just continually going back to the basics of that character and just doing new riffs on those basic tentpole elements really, really well. But um, that made me fall in love with the essence of Spider-Man. And so when I got to do this one cover, it was a it was a mini series where they got different artists to do each cover. It was a, it was sort of a return to the much hated Spider Clone uh, mini series of right. the '90s. But but when I got hired, they said you don't have to put Ben Riley or Scarlet Spider on it. Um, but part of it did involve Gwen Stacy clones, which is why Gwen Stacy's head is in the background. And I, I was like, holy shit, it's Spider-Man. Like, I doesn't matter that he wasn't a personal favorite. I'd, I'd come to love him, and the stature and the importance of this character is undeniable. And so I busted my ass to come up with something that I thought channeled the essence of all of that, 
and yet still was somehow fresh. And that's a tall order. It's like, I want something that synthesizes everything that's the best of this character that has existed for 40 years or 50 years. And yet I'm going to do something no one's seen before. Um, and so I looked at high jumpers. I did a lot of, I looked at a lot of reference of high jumpers. There's something in the, in the back arch, the way the back arches when someone's getting over that pole that I imagined would be very similar if you just turned it 90 degrees to the way if somebody was swinging from sure. a 50 foot rope in Manhattan, there'd be a similar sort of momentum sort of swing. And so I looked at a lot of photos of high jumpers to kind of get that, that body twist and and I synthesized it into this pose of and I did something I don't know if this has been done a lot or not I'm sure it's been done somewhere but that actual moment where he's just let go of the last web and he's shooting the next one like there's a lot of him swinging on one and in the cartoon you saw him kind of going from rope to rope but I at least hadn't seen too much of that moment that moment where he's just let go but he's shooting the next one right in between yeah yeah and the cover came and went without much fanfare um but uh but yeah, a few years later, I w- it was literally at Fan Expo where I was standing in the Marvel booth and I'm talking to somebody and my eyes sort of focused in behind them and I saw this poster for this new Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon. And it's not my art. The style's very different. It's much more cartoony and mm-hmm. brightly colored and there's no background. But the pose? That's your pose. Unmistakably the it's pose. It's your pose. I will say, and you're, it absolutely is. They definitely looked at your reference and I don't know if it was... Not going to say tracing, no, but no, no. I don't know. It, it wasn't. The head was shifted. I mean, there were differences, but again, that that pose was based very specifically on on high jumpers and not superheroes. So there are certain certain subtleties to it that are unmistakable. But let me be clear here: that's all good. That's yeah. that's the deal. I mean, when when you sign up to do any work for Marvel, it's very clear and openly understood that it's work for hire. And what that means is you are participating in something that's bigger. Yeah, obviously I didn't create Spider-Man. And just because I drew a picture, I'm part of something that's much, much bigger that's existed before me and will continue after. And the work for hire deal, you know, take it or leave it. It is what it is. Yeah. And so you sign that contract and you take that check, no problem. It's good. I understand going in. So if Marvel wants to take my cover and draw mustaches and cocks all over it <laughs> and then publish it, they can. And that's understood. Well, and it's and flattering so, to you. That, and it's, it's, it's purely yeah. flattering. Yeah. Again, there's no, there's no gripe <laughs> here at all. Simply somebody in the, in the production and design department of this cartoon went, okay, we need a promo image for this comic, this new cartoon that we're putting a whole bunch of money and energy in. Okay. Steve, Joe, and Lucy, you guys go through all the last 30 years of Spider-Man comics and find me the best poses because we need something that really encapsulates the essence of Spider-Man so that these millions of dollars we're spending will return to us. You go and you sift and they somebody landed on Spider-Clone Saga Revisited number three. <laughs> and then out of the 10 or 20 other covers they were looking at, they boiled down to this. And yeah, then they took it and went to their production artist who's probably the guy who designed the look and feel of this cartoon and went, okay, this. This We want you to take this pose and do this. This is speculation, but holy shit, all those Spider-Man images, the one time I do a cover and it they they base it on mine? Oh my God. It's pretty awesome. That is fucking awesome. I think you've got the absolute best attitude towards that too. And it's absolutely I just think that's a good, that's a great story, man. I busted my ass to come up with something that synthesized the archetype and yet was fresh. Yeah. And at least one other person thought so and ran with the ball. Awesome. It's great. 
And yeah, that that whole clone saga, I don't even... I wasn't, again, I was not a Spider-Man fan at yeah. that time. Dan Slott's stuff on Spidey's been amazing. And, and amazing is still, um, like, Spider-Man is the one comic that I've been reading Interesting much choice of life. adjective. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm enjoying the Spider-Verse right now where all the different, it, yeah. Slot, Dan Slott has found every Spider-Man version and iteration of the character from every type of, every universe in Every Spider-Man ever. Every Spider-Man ever. And they've all... And And even some new ones. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying your cowboy Cyclops could show up if they do a Cyclops verse or maybe one of Spider-Man. I don't know if there's a cowboy Spider-Man. I'm reading Spider-Verse. I haven't seen cowboy Spider-Man. If there was, he would probably appear in this. He's from your world. You need to to get in there. Be like, oh, there was a spider. Maybe that's... uh, you know, you can do a cover. <laughs> Variant cover. Deadwood Spiderwood. Cowboy Spider-Man with Cowboy Cyclops. Yeah. Are there any characters that you hate drawing? Like if somebody said, you've got to draw me Ghost Rider with all his chains flowing around. I don't like. <laughs> well, okay. I, I don't know about characters. Um, I mean, there are Chains certain, you don't like? <laughs> yeah. No joke. Um, I do have a, like a, a Top 10 list of shit I hate to draw and chains feature very high. Yeah, I imagine. Chains are a pain in the ass. In the (laughs) early 2000s, I worked at a video game company and I made the mistake of drunkenly telling this to a guy I worked with and he immediately pitched a chain golem to the producers. I I was doing all the monsters and just to fuck with me and I had to draw this chain golem and I wanted to murder him. Um, Yeah, chains, hands. Hands. Yeah, that's why I love Rom. He wears oven mitts. If, <laughs> if I created like a superhero universe, everyone would wear oven mitts. It'd be like Mego figures. Is it the fingers? Is it the they're, they're, Yeah, they're very hard. They're very important. Um, you know, hands and faces are really the two, the two tent poles of, of expressiveness. But doing them well is very, very hard. I, I stress and struggle over them all the time. It's never easy. I've, I used to draw a lot of comics, and I'm sure you hear this all the time. But yeah, when I was a kid in junior high and high school, and still now, I still dabble and just draw my own. And I actually always loved hands. I don't know why. And I, was, I would always love drawing hands, but I couldn't draw feet. I found feet very difficult. I've never had a problem drawing feet. I, that's yeah. the archetypal sort of every angry nerd on, on the internet is like bitching about comic artists not drawing feet. And I, I, I honestly, I don't think it's feet. I think it's it's more drawing somebody that actually looks like they're solidly standing is difficult. Like the, the feet themselves are actually pretty easy. Like, um, and I've been told I draw good feet. I don't know. I'm just saying that's you know that's like somebody <laughs> on a dating profile saying my friends tell me I'm attractive, but um, I've never found feet stressful or intimidating. But what actually is hard is connecting them to the ground plane, believably. And that involves things like like planning out shadows or like getting getting the perspective just right in a scene. And and that's that's a lot of work. And I think that honestly, like as somebody who's on the other side of it, like I think the reason for mist where legs fade out has more to do with actually believably connecting the ground plane than it does to actually drawing the shape of the feet. Interesting. I've never thought of that. Yeah. I mean, I know Liefeld is famously condemned for his mm. lack of foot drawing. He's far from the only one. There's a lot of, <laughs> this, yeah, if, if you cover feet, people freak out. And it's like, okay, what about that foot is delivering story, character, or plot? Right. The answer is nothing. Yeah, you can block Hands it Hands at least deliver character at the least, and sometimes even story or plot. Sure. 
you know? Yeah, you could but have feet. a character standing behind a table, but, and, feet. but he's waving. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of hands, do you ever worry about shaking hands? Do you do the pound? No, because I'm, you're, I'm an enthusiastic handshaker. Yeah, well, because your hands, you know, that's your sure um, livelihood. I, see, I thought you were going with the whole bubonic plague, like no, con, no, con no, blanket. no, not like the germaphobe thing. I'm thinking your hand is, but you it's, know, it's you not need uncommon to draw. for after a convention, every artist to be sick for a week. And it probably has a lot to do with all the handshakes. Well, what about the pound? You can just do no, the pound. I'm, I'm, you know what? Listen, um, I'm a Leo. Gonna... All attention is good attention. <laughs> I spend days and nights not alone because I do have a studio with other people, but I spend my days and nights toiling away. And when somebody comes up and says anything about it, it's like rainwater on a rose. You know, there's so much deprivation. <laughs> That I'll I'll take it. What a lovely. You want to shake my hand? You want to high five me? You want to you want to you want to criticize me? A- any attention? Anything? I'll take it. <laughs> Speaking of your studio, tell us about the studio. You you work with a few other artists. You guys have a, a very cool space. Imagine just where you're all making comic book magic. Yeah, I think so. I, I'm I'm part of a studio in Toronto called the Raid Studio. Yeah, it's a Royal Academy of Illustration and Design. Um, I've been there about six years, but the studio is coming up on ten. It's, wow. it's existed for a while. Yeah, none of the four founders are in the studio anymore. Um, it was founded by Cameron Stewart, Chip Zdarsky, Kagan McLeod, and Ben Shannon. And, uh, you know, they've all moved on to other things. All incredibly talented people. Word. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's about 11 of us now. Uh, we've been in the same building the whole time. And, you know, in the early part of my career, I worked from home for about five years. And um, I would never go back to that if I can help it. You know, weeks go by and you haven't put on pants. It's the real world just kind of whips by outside your window. It's not living life. <laughs> Yeah, leaving the house helps. It helps you get stuff done. And I imagine the motivation of being around other artists and inspiring each other. Like, I always think back to the Well, and it's the feeling of life life occurring outside versus feeling like you're participating in life. Sure. Um, And it's important because comics is ultimately a solitary task. Mm -hmm. And the thing that can really take the edge off that and the all-nighters and the stress is having other people around there who are who are dealing with the same things. And I'm very lucky in that, in that we have, we're all friends. Everybody gets along great. Everybody is very uh, involved in uh, feedback and, uh, and tips and, uh, and uh, critique in each other's work. Ultimately comics is, I mean, it's a freelance based uh, industry. So everybody, everybody collaborations, direct collaborations are kind of rare, but you know, I love those guys and, it's sort of like I had this image of working in comics when I was a kid and it involved a studio experience. And then I got into comics and I was like, oh, it's just me in my rec room with a computer and a drafting table. And then and then five years later, I was like, oh, no, wait, it's exactly like I thought it would be. Nice. It is a studio downtown. It is amazing. Oh, shit. I remember reading that like Walt Simonson, Frank Miller, and Howard Chaikin, I think, had a studio in Brooklyn cool. in the 70s. And I, that kind of blew my head open as a kid. I was like... Those I, three guys together hanging those out. Those three yeah. guys. And I was like, I never thought about it before, but I can sort of see how their work mm-hmm. is all similarly kind of blocky and 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 yeah. chunky and like i can yeah, sort Jaken of and simonson for sure yeah, yeah i can I see how they all kind of like you know i was like oh and then i was like well, that's what it must be like like you 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 get a studio and you work with guys and then i was like oh shit it's just my dining room and then oh no wait it's real 
it's it's the dream I I had when I was eight, and it's 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 real every day. It's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, I've read that that's sort of how Image came together too, and. Liefeld and McFarlane were working really close together when you can see it too on early Liefeld when he worked on New, New Mutants. There is some McFarlane influence, and I on and McFarlane made the cover. Too. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, Jim Lee and Will Sportatio and Mark Silvestri had Homage Studios yep. for a while. It sort of seems like McFarlane was the guy who sort of connected everybody. Yeah, he was the guy who sort of like recruited each one and went, "Hey, wake up." You know, we're the only thing that matters. Like, let's do something. So yeah. They all had similar influences. And then at the last second, Jim Valentino hitched his train to them. He was like 15 years older than all those guys. But, you know, he very shrewdly kind of jumped on. And Well, he had an indie career, too, right before Marvel. I mean, Valentino had sure. worked his way up. And I, I was a huge fan of his. We were talking about Guardians of the Galaxy earlier. Yeah. Valentino's Guardians of the Galaxy was one of my favorite comic books. I mean, I was at that perfect age reading that Marvel. It was but, my first Marvel I I had a letter that pub- was, published in Guardians really? of the Galaxy. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, it was like 11 years old or something. I feel like Guardians was his audition piece. Well, he the cool thing about Guardians was Valentino, he was very rare at the time because other than John Byrne and maybe, I don't know, the Frank Miller, there were only a handful of guys who were actually writing and illustrating a full comic at the time, and Valentino was writing and drawing Guardians of the Galaxy. Really? I, mean, I didn't know that. Yeah, he wrote and drew uh, the first 25 issues on his own. Um, I can't remember who the inker was. But yeah, the, the, just think about the image guys really quick, and you're talking about McFarland sort of being the the driving force. That's just me speculating. Yeah, well, bit, I think it's, it's it's a, yeah. that's a reasonable conclusion to draw. I I remember a Wizard Magazine interview with all the image creators. They typed it all out verbatim. It was, I don't know, like six or seven pages long. The whole thing was basically McFarland talking and Rob Liefeld going, yeah, yeah, Todd, yeah, yeah, Todd. <laughs> like, no one else was really saying much. Maybe Jim Lee piped in once or twice, but I just remember the whole, it was like basically a McFarland inter- interview with Rob Liefeld just sort of agreeing. Nice. Like, you tell him, Todd, yeah, yeah, get him. Oh, yeah, I'm Tom McFarlane. You know these all these nuns that say they uh, they don't like Spawn and kiss my ass. So McFarlane was like Biggie and <laughs> yeah, and, and Rob was just like like Puffy going uh huh. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. I mean, now I was a big fan of, of that stuff at the time. McFarlane, I I love the McFarlane stuff, but but I always liked the Larson stuff better. As a as a Savage Dragon, as fan, Savage Dragon fan, sense. and you know what? To this day, Savage Dragon still out of the original founders. He's the only guy still writing and drawing, and he's been going. They're about to hit issue two hundred. Yeah, he's doing his thing. He's he's Larson's amazing. He has Savage fans, Dragon, you know, the needle doesn't move. They they have enough to keep it going, and it is what it is. Yeah, you talk about a Simonson influence too. A lot of his stuff. He's got. He's like a lot of Kirby and a lot of Simonson. Oh, yeah, all of those guys. I yeah, mean, I mean. It took me a while to realize, but I can totally see the Simonson influence in Art Adams, who is the guy who influenced a lot of those guys. Which is so interesting because Adams is so clean and and tight. Mm-hmm. And I think of uh, Simonson being a little uh, almost scratchier. And you oh, said yeah. blockier. Absolutely right. Yeah. He is. I mean, and the, the other influence on Art Adams, the other foundational artist is Mike Golden. So if you take yeah. Mike Golden... And Walt Simonson, you put them together, you know, you kind of get my golden anatomy in hands and faces, and you get Walt Simonson capes and explosions, you get Art Adams. Of course, and golden influenced everybody there, yeah. you know. This has been great. Okay, there's one more thing I want to ask you about. We'll fit in. I'm having a great time. I'm cool, man. It's really cool. rambling. Well, there's, you know what? There's a lot of things. We were talking about covers. We were talking yeah. about, you know. Your, your, your transitions are amazing. Oh, jeez. It's, you know, we're just having a great time. I'm great you came by. 
you did covers again. I keep coming back to saying some of my favorite characters and some of my favorite comics. One of my favorite comics of the last few years has been Irredeemable with Mark Wade, and you cool. did some of those covers. I did the last few, yeah. Yeah. Did you work with Mark Wade di- directly on no. that? <laughs> no, they just nope. Boom contacted you yep. and Boom, boom contacted comics. me, and I dealt with editors at Boom, and I never spoke to Mark. Um, weirdly, that was my second Mark Wade gig back in the Devil's Due days when I was doing. Uh, uh, G.I. Joe covers, I did I did one chapter of a Voltron backup that Mark Wade was writing. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, Clement Sauvet had drawn the first chapter, and then he had to drop it due to other commitments. And uh, and I did the second chapter, and then the book got canceled. Mark Wade on Voltron. Mark Wade on Voltron. They obviously didn't promote it enough. Yeah. So that was my, that was my, <laughs> this was my second uh, sort of overlap with Mark Wade. And, and, that that also was one of many overlaps with Clement Sauvé, who uh, sadly passed away a few years ago. But he was an immensely talented illustrator and designer. Mm. But uh, yeah, I I got a call to do Irredeemable. I'd done some other stuff with Boom, and uh, I'd never read it, so I asked them to send me some, and they very kindly sent me all the trade paperbacks, and I totally got lost in it, and I loved it. It's amazing. Yeah, and then I was absolutely a fan, and. 10 times more excited to be doing this gig. And I didn't know it, but my first issue was like, I think there were only five more left and I did four of those. That's the book that made me pay attention to Boom on the whole. Irredeemable, that comic, if people listening have not read Irredeemable by Mark Wade, in a nutshell, it's basically what if Superman just got fed up with humanity? And it's interesting because this is a, this is an idea that's been tossed around forever. It's a really yeah. old idea like, oh, what if Superman went bad? Oh, no. Like every every nerd has that version of that in their like what if box. So when they announced it, I was like, yeah, whatever. But it was handled so it well. It was handled so well. And it was so intense and kinetic. It was like um, that Battlestar Galactica episode 33. That first, I think it was like the first actual episode after the movie where it was just like, there's not a moment's rest. Like everything's, the stakes are always through the roof and people are dying and there's no escape and there's no rest. It was like, it was like that, but it was like that for like three arcs. And that comic was amazing. Yeah, it came out of left field. Mark Wade, obviously he's written, he's always been an amazing writer, Kingdom Come, everyone knows. But he was kind of, it just really kind of came out of left field all of a sudden. Like, what is this from Boom by Mark Wade? Bam. And that comic, every issue was blowing out any week that that came out. It sort of rose to the top of my to-read pile immediately. Yeah, I and never... that story... Yeah, I was addicted. I, you know what? I and then I remember you seeing it. you do the cover. Like, Calvin's doing one of these covers is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. Man. Yeah, that's one of the things I was really proud to be a part of, even in that little way. And you know what? Weirdly, I never finished the series. I still have to read the Oh, you got to go read the end. I've never actually read the issues I did covers for. The ending is oh really yeah, oh so you got to finish it. I've only I think read it, up to volume eight or it's ten volumes. I think I've read only yeah, up to eight or nine. I think I it only finished. went to the thirties. I forget what the last issue yeah, was. Thirty four. Thirty four. Yeah, yeah. kind of like Devils Do. Those Devils Do GI Joe when they when the ones you worked on were like towards the end. You worked at the uh, World War Three. You worked on those. Maybe I only did like one or two. I did that. I did that. Yeah, that it was rock, during the World it, War Three. <laughs> it was a Skullbuster, Skullbuster, who was the uh, Rogue Range Viper, one, and then I yeah. did the Storm Shadow miniseries. Yes, Storm Shadow. Yeah, with with another amazingly talented uh, colorist who sadly also passed away. Who was that? Uh, Stefan Peru. Yeah, he uh, he died very young at twenty six, uh, and he and I had been 
he'd done some, colored some covers for me at DC too. Uh, it happens. It's weird. Yeah. That's, that's always, anyway. I'm sorry to hear that. Shout babe. outs to, to Stefan Peru and Clement Sauvé, two amazingly talented artists who were taken from us too soon. But uh, yeah, that's from Shadow Series was kind of fun. It I, was cool. Now, that, now there's a series where I think they just said to Larry Hama, do whatever you want. We love you. Your G.I. Joe fans are going to follow you wherever you go. What do you want to do? And he's like, eh, I just want to do sort of an unconventional Storm Shadow story. Where was it, it, just was goes it a off weird on book? It was very weird compared to other Joe books. It was just sort of Storm Shadow going off on his own with a weird supporting cast. It, it felt like one of those spinoff TV shows where they like, they take a character Maybe not so much. It wasn't as, as successful as Frasier. We're like, here's Frasier from Cheers. Let's just take him out of Boston, put him in I Seattle. I love that you're trying, to, <laughs> you're trying to you're trying to shorthand a Storm Shadow miniseries, and your first touchstone is Frasier. Well, you take Storm Shadow out of GI Joe comics. That's throw a him pitch. off on his own. It's He's kind of like thing. Storm Shadow meets <laughs> Frasier, or maybe it's more like Chief Wiggum when he had that spinoff. They did that thing where he goes off to New Orleans. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. talking about? uh simpsons old simpsons okay well it's been amazing i wanted there's one more thing i want to ask you if you had any character that you could work on any book and any other creator writer inker colorist whatever you want to do maybe you want to write it yourself what is that dream book i'm sure you've been asked this before but not really well i'd love to know what what would be that one book that maybe let's say five ten years from now i can bump into you at fan expo go Calvin, oh my God, you're finally working on this. Jeez, is there is there one yet? That's tough. Um, I well, my the one thing that immediately comes to mind that is going to be impossible now is uh, I've I've always had a soft spot for Wolverine as an old school X Men reader. Um, he's been my favorite character pretty much my whole life. Um, and he's dead now and he's never coming back. So obviously that's impossible. <laughs> I have a feeling they'll bring him back. No, he's never coming. He's dead. <laughs> he's dead. But yeah, I, I've really wanted to do something with Wolverine. Um, that's the character that like when I bought that issue of X-Men when I was five and I went, I want that book cause it's a bunch of weirdos I've never seen before. He was a character that stood out and I could draw that mask blindfolded. Like that's, that's the, that's the superhero I doodle when I'm on the phone. I'm not really thinking about it. All of my like grade school binders are like covered in Wolverine masks. Um, so something with Wolverine as for writers, I would love to work with Brian Michael Bendis. I think he, he gets a lot of heat from fans here and there, but I honestly think that guy has single-handedly reinvented Marvel comics and, and, by to a greater extent, superhero comics. I agree. Marvel would not be where it is. Right he now. has completely constructed a paradigm where he balances. And okay, maybe not in every issue, but in every arc for sure, he balances character, humor, surpri- like like mystery. And, well, maybe not mystery, but character, humor, plot, and action. And some it, so that means that you know maybe it, one issue of six is people talking, but. You know, and he, as as he says quite quite succinctly, like think about your life and think about the things that define your life. Think about the moments you remember, the moments you regret, the things that have stayed with you. Is it someone punching you, or is it something someone said? 
That's pretty. That's heavy. a mic drop moment. Like that, you, you just know? dropped the mic yeah. right there. Well, I'm, I'm. Well, it's really his mic drop that I'm regurgitating, but I completely believe that, and that that is the perfect justification for why sometimes it, when you're creating a symphony that is all of these parts, action, humor, character. Sometimes you know one episode is going to be just one, but the big picture is the overall story, and I think he. He's a guy who got to start in indie comics and the amount of indie comic isms that he's brought into the mainstream, just in terms of like page treatments, panel treatments, the way he thinks about the comic spread as a canvas, his use of double page spreads, not for one big image, but for sequences of panels, um, the way he's brought like the thing that always comes to mind is, do you remember when they relaunched Avengers uh, for uh, Brand New Day? Yep. And there were these scenes where they were recruiting Avengers and there was a double page spread of people saying yes, no, or maybe. And that was something he'd used in Powers before. It was like that, 12 panels a page. Yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was something that, I don't know if this is where he got it or it was contemporaneous or what, but like I remember seeing that in Box Office Poison. Do you remember that indie book? Yeah. To, uh, yeah. So chapters would begin with the omnipotent narrator asking the characters a question and every character would kind of weigh in on that. That was a very indie comics approach to like almost a documentary in comics, like as indie as indie can get. And then you t- Bendis either comes up on it on his, on his own or sees it in box office poison and runs with the ball and puts it into powers, which is a police procedural. And then that yep. makes sense. Fast forward eight years and Avengers number one, the tentpole of Marvel's new relaunch features this very specific indie storytelling device. And like, how did we get here in 10 years? Like, that's amazing to me that a guy can completely reinvent the very storytelling fabric of comics and take it from indie indie arty to the most mainstream of mainstream and that is exciting to me that's what really excites me about about the way he works and the way he thinks about things so i have a a a huge bendis boner (laughs) he's the guy i would i would i would push people in front of cars to work with and he's an awesome guy i've had i've met him a couple times he's super friendly he loves comics and he has not stopped working when you look back to jinx and goldfish or Straight up, I know. I remember he did the the Spawn spinoff, Sam and Twitch, and then <laughs> yeah, got into Marvel and did yeah. Daredevil and Ultimate Spidey and into Avengers and into X Men. And he's just he hasn't let up. And I would love to see a Bendis Kalman comic. That'd be amazing. So would Kalman Wolverine. We'll make it happen. There we go. We'll just link twenty fifteen. We'll link him this. We'll Bendis link him this podcast. Wolverine for sure. Man, thank you so much for coming by. My pleasure. I'm very excited to read uh, the new Captain Canuck and see your covers. Any new covers coming out soon that we can look out for in the next couple months? Uh, Teen Titans number five or number six. Okay. Yeah, it's my first DC work in a while. I'm really excited about it. Nice. Get to draw any crazy characters on that one? Uh, only if Manchester Black is crazy. <laughs> he's a he's a Joe Casey parody of a Warren Ellis character yeah. that popped up in, in the early 2000s that there's a new 52 version of yeah he's um, a spoof of one of the authority guys yeah. right yeah and i got to draw wonder girl and the new power girl nice well, that was fun i kind of cool. gave wonder girl like kind of a blythe danner vibe nice nice I'll, I'll check that out nice i'll see you on the racks i guess oh yeah <laughs> all right man thanks thank you i see that story first i know those people first when i put them down they've already lived and there's elements in my stories that are very very real and I had to come up with characters that were no longer stereotypes. In other words, I couldn't depend on gangsters. I had to get something new. 
I came up with Galactus. of the Modern Superior Media Network.